Um, so if you have been able to turn to Philippians 1, 18 through 26, I'm going to ask you to stand for the reading of God's word. All right, again, I'm just going to start in verse 18. It says, yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come, oops, excuse me, I went too far. <laughs> this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. <laughs> Sorry, court. <laughs> Lilo jumped the gun. Good morning, guys. How are you? So uh, we've been in the series of Philippians now for a couple of weeks. Um, before we pray, uh, I think I want to mention a couple things about uh, the series. If you haven't already kind of caught this, as we've begun to navigate uh, through this chapter, Paul kind of seems uh, a little superhero-ish in the Christian faith. Have you, have you kind of got that, that drift? Uh, if, if you haven't, lean in a little bit. You, what we've talked about so far, uh, Paul starts, the first thing that we get is that he's imprisoned, right? You, that's how, that, you have to have that background. This is one of his prison epistles. And so you kind of get this tone that he's in prison and then he's writing about joy. So that's like the first characteristic of superhero. I don't know if you've ever been in jail. I have. <laughs> I need to make that known. This is the church, okay? And so uh, I, I didn't think of writing to my family. I didn't think of writing, and I definitely didn't think of writing about joy. And that's kind of how Paul starts with his tone of his letter. Uh, and then secondarily, he's thinking of the church. So he's not thinking about his well-being. He's thinking about the well-being of the believers in Philippi, which you know, if you, if you read the book of Acts, the interesting thing about this is, is one of the times that Paul, out of many, that he was imprisoned wrongly, he was imprisoned at Philippi. In fact, many believe that the very birth of the Philippian church came out of Paul's imprisonment when the Philippian jailer was converted as the jail doors were open when Paul and Silas prayed at midnight. Do you guys remember that story? They're all chained and beaten, and at midnight they begin to sing praises to God. The, the, the doors of the jail cells open. And the Philippian jailer says, uh, you know, I, I, he, he goes to commit suicide. He says he's going to kill himself. And Paul says, don't do it. We're all accounted for, which, you know, who says that? I don't know if you, you know, think about prison inmates. He say, everybody stay where you are when the prison gates open. You know, who has that kind of authority? And they all stay where they are. And then he begins to share the gospel with the Philippian jailer. The Philippian jailer is converted. His whole household is baptized. Many believe that's the birth of that church. Um, and, and Paul writes this letter as he's in prison experiencing, you know, probably some little PTSD here, right? And he's writing to the Philippian church in care. It's another, like, superhero characteristic. Um, and then lastly, he, he begins to give us a little bit more of his experiences as he's in prison. He starts to say things like, um, 
the, the gospel's being preached from two sides. One is the people who love me, and they're beginning to be emboldened by my, my courage, and, and they're emboldened by the fact that I'm, I'm standing firm in prison. And then there's another group of people who hate me, and they're preaching the gospel in hopes to stir up more uh, dissension so that I would be beaten more. And Paul responds to that rather than responding in great anger. He says, here's the thing. It's all a win because the gospel's being preached. So I rejoice. And, and, and then listen, we're, not, we're halfway through the first chapter, and so I wanted to pause here because I wanted to uh, address something that I think is obvious. If you're already listening to this in the last two weeks and you're like, listen, that's just not my experience in the Christian faith. I feel very removed from that kind of superhero-ness. Um, I want to first say I get it, right? I, I feel that too sometimes when I read Paul. Like I, I remember as an early Christian, I would read Paul, and he always starts his letters uh, you know, in these elaborate greetings where he, he talked about, you know, loving everybody, and I would always think, that's not true. You know, no one talks like that. No one says that kind of stuff. And, um, and, and so I, I read Philippians, and I, and I get that. I kind of resonate. Like, that doesn't feel like my experience. But here's what I want to say. We have to reject that when it comes up in our hearts, because if we're not careful, if we, if, we, if we reject everything that Paul says as he's a superhero Christian, there's two things that are happening. One, we're not believing the very truths of Scripture, which tell us that there, there is no hierarchy in the apostles or hierarchy in the Christian faith, but that we are a priesthood of believers. And so we can take Paul's experience and apply that, and we ought to believe and expect the same level of spiritual maturity that God can bring to pass in our lives by the power of the Spirit through the gospel message. And so the first thing we're doing is we're, we're walking in unbelief when we say, that's just not me. And the second thing I think we're doing is we're robbing ourselves of the joy that's offered here. We're robbing ourselves of the opportunity to see that even if you currently aren't experiencing this level of trust in Jesus, that it's what God desires for us. Amen? That's what we want, right? It's what we should desire. And so uh, I wanted to start there because I wanted to say, let's pray together that we wouldn't just kind of say, well, that's Paul. You know, that's his thing. You know, he wears a cape around and heals people with washcloths. And then there's me and my circumstances. Let's, let's pray that God doesn't let us do that, and instead we would say, Lord, teach us, shape us, mold us. We want that for us. Amen? So let's pray to that end, and then I'll, then I'll jump in. If you'll bow your heads with me. Father, we want to admit to you now that as we read Philippians, and God, sometimes uh, when I read Paul, it seems different than, than when I read maybe David. David makes sense to me because he's duplicitous at times, and and, and, and when I read Paul, sometimes, Lord, I just think there's such a, a zeal, such a passion, such a fervor, such a single-mindedness that it, it doesn't land with, with my own duplicity sometimes. And so, God, we confess to you that, that at times it's hard for us to believe we could experience that level of joy in, in the face of such hardship. But, Lord, we reject that feeling. We reject that unbelief. And this morning together, what we ask is that you would give us great faith to believe that there's more to be had in you and that this is an offer from you that we want to enthusiastically embrace. Help us to do that, God. We, we admit to you that we can't without your help. And so open our hearts, open our eyes, open our ears to hear and, and, and shape and mold us, God, by your matchless grace. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So where we're at is, is Paul has been imprisoned, he is chained, but he tells us the gospel is not chained. Even if I'm chained, the gospel is not. And then he says at the beginning here in Philippians, in verse 18, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. I love that Paul says this because what he's giving us an inclination of is that even despite his hardest circumstances, Paul believes that he's going to be delivered. Now, here's the thing. He, deliverance doesn't mean what you and I might think that it means. He's going to go on to say deliverance could be death or deliverance could be life, but it's going to be deliverance nonetheless. Um, but he says, I believe this is going to work out for my deliverance because, why would Paul say that? God is a great deliverer. We know this because Paul is a Pharisee of Pharisees is what he says. Later on, we're going to get into that in chapter 3. Paul knows the Old Testament well, and so he doesn't use this word deliverance lightly. He used this word deliverance because the, the children of Israel are birthed upon a story of God delivering his people from slavery in Egypt, from a terrible situation that they thought themselves they would never get out of. They cried out in Exodus chapter number 3, and it says that God heard their cries. They were in a situation that they felt there was no hope, like they were looking up from the bottom. And so Paul says, I'm very confident that God's going to deliver me from this. Why? Because he's done it before, and he'll do it again. You see, Paul teaches here that joy in Christ is offered not as a matter of circumstance, um, but instead joy in Christ is offered to us apart from our circumstances in the midst of our circumstances. You see, it's the chicken and the egg argument. Paul says, no, it's not what happens to me that dictates my joy, but my joy begins to dictate how I see what happens to me. I'm imprisoned, and it was wrongfully so, and I believe that I serve a sovereign God, and so I could ask, why would he allow this to happen? Or I could see that I live in a broken world, and I believe that my God can deliver me, and I trust that he has a good hand even when I don't understand what that hand is doing. And so he leans in to the sovereignty of God here and says, I believe God's going to deliver me. And he says this, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So now he begins to get into certain emotions here that I think are really familiar for us. And, and this is why I started this sermon the way that I did, because I want us to lean in here. These are familiar emotions you and I experience on a daily basis. One is shame. He says, I don't want to be ashamed, but I believe that with full courage, I'll be able to, to stand. And whether by life or by death, Christ is going to be honored as I stand in courage. Now, Paul uses this idea of shame, not only in this letter, but in a famous text in Romans chapter 1, verse number 16. Some of you are familiar with this. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. You guys know that text? Paul uses this often because it, it harkens back to the words of Jesus, where Jesus told his disciples that if they were ashamed of him, that he would be ashamed of them on the day of judgment. You guys remember that text? And so Paul knows this uh, about the words of Jesus, and he's, he's ruminating in his mind as he's imprisoned, and he's thinking, there's going to be a temptation for me when I'm on trial. There's going to be a temptation for me when I stand before the judges and rulers, as God has prophesied to me that I will. And that temptation is going to be to fall victim to shame rather than courage in order to get out of my circumstances. 
But instead he says, I will rejoice because I'll face it with courage and trust that Christ will dictate my circumstances. And he's very, I love Paul because as, as happy slappy as you may think he is, he's really honest. What does he say? Life and death is what's, what's going to happen, one or the other. Either God's going to deliver me and I'm going to get out of this, there's going to be life and joy, or they're going to kill me. But what does he say? Either way, my expectation is that I'm going to reject shame and embrace courage, and God will be glorified. Christ will be honored in my body. Why does he use shame? Well, shame in the scripture is the thief of joy. Um, Shame is the thief of joy because it refuses us to allow our heart to take delight in anything or anyone without shame accusing us and without shame continually reminding us of something that we would like to hide. And here's the thing, sometimes we want to hide things because they're sinful and sometimes we want to hide things because we've been convinced that they are wrong. I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, So it's easy to say in the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter number 3, when sin entered the garden and Adam and Eve had sinned against God, what's the first thing that happens? They were naked and ashamed. And this is what we would call well-placed shame, right? Because shame is the uh, natural result of sin. And so what they do is they recognize their nakedness, they cover themselves, and they hide from God. This is how we've, we all experience sin in our own lives, right? Is when sin happens, shame occurs. We want to hide from God. But there's another type of shame that is misplaced shame, and it happens in a myriad of ways. One would be that you experience sin of another that is close to you, and then you feel ashamed because of that sin. Anybody ever experienced this? This happens, this happens in marriages. It happens in families. It's where you can feel dirty by association. You begin to be ashamed of something that has happened to you or has happened around you, and you begin to feel ashamed of it. Another thing is that it's, shame is so hardwired into our broken natures. Some of you might notice this with kids. I'll tell you a story of my own son, not to, uh, not to shame him, but it's kind of funny because you probably have experienced this too with your children. My son... Uh, Jonas, he's starting to learn his languages. So for those of you who don't know, we adopted my son from Kyrgyzstan, which if you don't know, that's not where Borat is from. You know, uh, Kyrgyzstan is a nation uh, south of Kazakhstan. It is west of China. It's a tiny little landlocked country. I didn't know where it was either until God led us to, to adopt our son from there. And uh, he already had a speech delay, so he was already struggling with speech, which is not uncommon for children that have been institutionalized. But also, he was learning, you know, learning English coming from Russian being his, his primary language. And so as he got into our household, uh, you know, the only thing that he knew how to say was da. And that might sound sweet, like he's talking to me, dad, that means yes in Russian. So it wasn't sweet, okay? He, does, he wasn't trying to say daddy, he would just say da. That's what he'd say to everything. He'd point, da, da, and that's what he said nonstop. Um, but as he began to learn things, and now he's growing up, he's starting to learn language, and he's starting to do little things like, like sing. Um, like the new thing that he does right now is he, he, uh, he does the fee-fi-fo-fum. He does that when he walks around. But he doesn't quite know how to say the F sound, so he says, dee, die, do, dumb, and he just like stomps around. He's a pretty big kid, so it's funny. Um, but as he's learned to do things you know, that are really cute like that, and you're a parent, so you get this, and you think your kid is way cuter than anybody else thinks, I get it, I think he's way cuter than you do, that's fine. But when they do cute things like that, and then you, get, you try to get them to, re, to redo it in front of others, what always happens? They kind of like, 
You're like, buddy, it's okay. Like, do it again. You're almost like, perform. Dance, monkey. You know, you want them to do something, right? It's like, you just did something funny. Do it again. And they won't. It's like they, they, they hang their heads. They, and not every child's like this. Some of your kids are performing, and they just jump right into it. But by and large, there's like this, no, not in front of them. And we try to coax it out of them, don't we? We try to say, it's okay. We try to tell them, why, why, why are you embarrassed? And I use this story because what that tells us is that shame's so hardwired into the human condition that even in a child, there's this misplaced shame that keeps them from doing something that we find delight in. You know, you laugh about, but, but, but something's going on. When I was, uh, I was, I think, maybe six, seven. It might be younger than that. You know, I, I grew up in a, in a rural house. Like, my, my roads, I, I could still remember in, in, I think, kindergarten, first grade, my bus route, many of the roads on my bus route, they were not paved roads. So that's where I grew up from, okay? A little bit, like, rural. And so... Uh, I could have been younger, but my, my dad got me a Christmas gift, and it was my first knife, okay? Uh, and it was very small. My dad was very, you know, he said, listen, as soon as I opened that gift first for some reason, I, I'm pretty sure hindsight's 20-20 on that. Uh, he said, listen, don't open this uh, until later, and I'll teach you how to use it. I said, sweet. I'm excited. Well, what was the first thing that I did? Well, there's three siblings, so it's not like they're just looking at me. They're looking, and they're watching. We all did, you know, gifts individually. So I opened that thing. And I got the knife out. And now what I wanted to do is I used this tiny little knife, and I opened it up, and I wanted to open all the other presents with it. So I got it open, and here I go. I start slicing away. Well, my dad's, you know, focused, and then I'll do it. Well, you know what happened, right? I nicked my thumb. Oh, that hurts. So it starts bleeding. So I'm like, I got to go to the bathroom. I run to the bathroom. I get toilet paper, and I wrapped it up on my thumb. I come back. Now, what you think if you're a wise child is you stop. But I'm not a wise child. <laughs> I go back at it again. By the end of the morning, I had toilet paper all over my hands. Blood is all over these toilet paper. And my dad comes and says, son, what did you do? And I remember just looking at the ground, and I'm trying to figure out. And here's the thing. He's asking a rhetorical question. He knows what I did. Right? In my mind, in my childhood mind, what I'm, what I'm trying to think is, how can I spin a story where I didn't cut myself with a knife? There's a bloody knife. I have bloody hands. I'm six years old. It's very clear what happened, and I'm trying to figure out how do I spin a story <laughs> that I didn't cut myself. And that might sound crazy, but it also probably speaks to, to maybe some of the stories that you have. It goes back to our first parents, right? When God says, Adam, where are you? This is rhetorical. Do you think that God is not good at hide-and-go-seek? Like... He needs to know where he's at. Like, Adam, I lost you. No, it's rhetorical. Where are you? And then he says, you know, here I am, right? Who told you that you were naked? He said, why did you hide? That's another rhetorical. Why did you hide? Well, I'm naked. Who told you that you were naked? See, God keeps asking these rhetorical questions. He knows why they're hiding. He knows where they are, and he knows who told them that. And still, there's this shame built up in Adam. And, 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 and what happens is, is Adam doesn't, just like many of us, doesn't immediately say it was, it was the serpent and, and, I, and I, I sinned against you, Lord. What does he say? The woman that you gave me. That's the problem. <laughs> Men, you've done this before, haven't you? All right? Your wife says, what'd you do? Like, what, what, why is it a mess in here? And you're like, you left me alone with the kids. <laughs> you're the problem. <laughs> right? And then, and the ladies, you're not off the hook, right? Because then God says, Eve, what happened? The snake. 
the serpent came in here and did it. Now, we know that's a partial truth, right? Because if it weren't for the serpent, perhaps there was no temptation. Perhaps there was no opportunity for this. So there's a partial truth there, but it's not the whole truth. Because what the Bible tells us is when Eve saw that it was good for food, and she desired that in her own eyes, then she took. Shame led her to partially lie. And, and, and that shame keeps them from the joy, the shalom, the peace that they had in relation to God. And ever since our first parents did that, this is the human condition, is it not? Shame. It's so powerful. And Paul says this, he says, I eagerly expect that God is going to give me the courage to face my shame and instead honor Jesus. He says, listen, I know what shame can do. And I believe that God's going to give me the courage to reject shame. I'm not going to be ashamed of Christ. I'm not going to be ashamed of what he's done for me. I'm not going to be ashamed of where I am. And I'm not going to try to spin this to get out of here because I'm going to face these accusers. And these accusers that are accusing Paul as he's in prison, probably in Rome, they take the shape of what many of us experience on an everyday basis, which is that we all face an accuser. There's only one person in the Bible that is called the accuser of the brethren. Do you know who he is? Satan. And shame is our response. It's what we embrace when the accuser comes and tells us that this ought to, be stay, this ought to stay in the dark for, for, the, for the sin that's there or for the misplaced shame that's there. He says, keep that because you are dirty. You are this or you are that. And the accuser begins to accuse. And Paul says, I with great courage will face my accuser and I'll honor Christ. There's a book called The Soul of Shame by a guy named Kurt Thompson. There's a couple quotes that he has on shame that I think are helpful. I didn't write them down, so they're going to be put up on the screen. I'll just read them. He says this, all that we do, parenting, pastoring, farming, playing basketball, carpentry, police work, structural engineering, is done in response to love and shame competing for our attention. Wrestling for authority over our memory, emotion, sensations, and behaviors. That's a very intense thought, isn't it? That even at our jobs at times, we're either operating out of love. So men, you go to work and you love your family and you, you love your wife, you love your children, you love your God and therefore you will work heartily unto the Lord and you will face all of the difficulties of that day out of love. Or you have deep-rooted shame that is constantly also competing to be your primary motivator, which is that you don't feel like you are enough. You don't feel like you'll ever add up. You don't feel like you're ever going to be able to, to get your foot on the ball, as it were. And so you're motivated by that shame to prove that accuser wrong. But all of it is this competing motivations. And so what springs forth out of each? Out of love, the fruit of Christ. And out of shame, bad fruit. Unhealthy fruit, even sinful dark fruit. He goes on in the second quote to say this. Shame's healing encompasses the counterintuitive act of turning toward what we are most terrified of. We fear the shame that we will feel when we speak of that very shame. Isn't that true? Our greatest fear is to speak of the shame. The, and, and that shame is what keeps us from speaking of the shame. It's odd. In some circumstances, we anticipate this vulnerable exposure to be so great that it will be almost life-threatening. Have you ever felt that? If I say this about who I am, 
I don't even know who I am. I lose my life. Or I'll lose things close to me. I'll lose what I hold dearest. But it is in the movement toward one another, toward connection with someone who is safe, that we come to know life and freedom. I love this because think about Paul from this prison. Why can Paul have joy in prison? He's already been freed from the, the worst prison that there is, the prison of shame. And so you can put him in physical prison and he's free. You cannot take a man's freedom who's been freed by Christ. If you don't believe me, Jesus said it like this, he who the son of man sets free is free indeed. I love that Kurt Thompson says that shame imprisons our hearts. But that when we move toward connection with someone and we're able to finally name what deep in our hearts we are so afraid to name, it's then when we can be freed. Now, here's the thing. It's not enough, right, for us to t- that, that, that safe person to be one another. I think it's a good start, right? So some of you are like, I've been open with my spouse, and I've experienced that freedom. And I would say, friends, thanks be to God that you've experienced that. But the problem is, it's not enough to speak with human beings. The safe person we need most is who? Jesus. This is why uh, Martin Luther, uh, the reformer, had a problem with certain theology that was being uh, spun by the church in his day. Is he had a problem with someone telling him that he could go to a confession booth and he could bear this shame to a man on the other side and that somehow he would be internally freed at the depths of his soul. And the reason that he had a problem with this is because he knew that what was happening in his soul was an eternal darkness. And he needed someone who could bear that eternal darkness. And he thought men can't do that. And and as much as he valued the priesthood of the saints, as much as he valued being able to talk with a brother in Christ about these things, he knew that he needed something greater. Now, the way he handled it might not have been the best, because what Martin Luther did is he would try to stay in confession booths for 8, 12, 16 hours a day and wear the priest out. (laughs) Why would he do that? He did that because when the priest would say, I need a bathroom break, he would say, whoa, my advocate can't leave. My high priest can't leave. I'm, I'm, I'm pleading before the throne here. Or if he said, I'm tired, he said, listen, my priest can't be tired. I need someone to listen. What was he trying to say? He was trying to prove a point, and the point is that you and I, being human beings, we can't plead before the Father eternally, forever, ceaselessly, like Jesus does. Paul tells us in Romans that Christ is constantly interceding on our behalf as a great high priest who never gets tired, who never gets weary, who never takes bathroom breaks, who constantly takes our shame and guilt and brings it before the Father and says, I've atoned for it, Father. Cleanse them. Heal them. Bring life to them. Bring joy to them. And it doesn't matter what time of night. There's never a time where Jesus has to wake from his slumber to come to the confession booth. He's already there. And Martin Luther, knowing this, says... I love you, brother, but you can't be that for me. It's kind of a harsh way to do it, right? But effective nonetheless. Paul goes on. He says this. And this is a life verse, isn't it? Many of us have heard this verse, and, and I've heard it much of my Christian life. It's so challenging, but it's so uh, freeing because this is, uh, either this or Acts twenty twenty four to me is, is kind of sums up Paul's life and ministry. He says this. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. 
My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy, there's that word again, in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. See, Paul tells us his joy is secure because his bottom line in life is Jesus. Jesus equals joy for Paul. And so, Paul says this, because Christ can't be taken away from me, neither can my joy be taken away from me in the worst of all circumstances. So in prison, he says, to me, if they kill me, they send me to be with Jesus. And he says, that's far better. Now, this is a wise man. There's many times in my life that when I'm in dark moments, I would appreciate that, and I would appreciate that truth. Because when you're in dark moments, isn't that true? You just say, it'd be better to be with Jesus. But sometimes when you're having joyful moments on this earth, you go, you know, Lord, just tarry a little longer. You ever had that? Like your wedding day probably is one of those, hopefully. Some of you guys are like, nah, we'll do counseling later. Um, there's these days, right, that just things are working out. You wake up, you can breathe out of both nostrils. You know, your body doesn't pop in all sorts of weird ways whenever you stretch. You get up and you don't feel like orc number three on Lord of the Rings. You eat a good breakfast, you get in your car, you go to work, you, don't, you just hit all green lights. Like, that's nice. You get to work, and, or it's a day off. Huh, snow day, right? Things just start working out. You go to, the, you go to eat lunch, and you're not craving, like, a, you know, quadruple stacker. You're like, I'll eat a salad, and it fills you up. And in those moments, sometimes when we hear this, to die is gain, we're like, oh, that's a little tough little harsh I mean life's not so bad but have you ever suffered deeply gone through a dark night of the soul see in those times you understand why Paul would say this from the depths of prison he says listen to be with Jesus is far better than this life it's far better than the sin sick world we live in it's far better than this guilt ridden shame infested brokenness that we find ourselves in. He's telling us the truth, even though it's hard words. And I appreciate the truth, even if it stings. But then he says, but to live, I get Christ. If I'm to live in this shame-infested, dark, guilt-ridden, broken world, guess what? I have a Redeemer. And I have a union with this Redeemer by the power of the Spirit. And now I no longer walk like a man only broken, but I can be whole. Uh, not, not only walk as a man that's only a sinner, but I am a saint. Not only walk as a man who is only downtrodden, but I can walk as a man who has great hopefulness even in my brokenheartedness. And so he says to live as Christ. You see, friends, the reason I started the way I did this morning is because your joy in Christ, it cannot be stolen from you, but it only can be forfeited. To say it another way, no one can take away your joy in Jesus, but you can give it away. See, Paul refused to give it away. He refused to give it away to shame. He refused to give it away to his circumstances. He refused to give his joy away to all of the things that were combating, and he said, no, because Christ has won this for me, and he is my sure and steady anchor to live as Christ and to die as gain. And he's able to put these lenses on his eyes through which he sees the world. I've always called these gospel lenses. That's what's offered to us 
when we are made new again. We get to have gospel lenses put on our eyes. We see our circumstances differently. Because we see our circumstances through the lenses of both eternity and the Savior. Eternally what is true and what has been made eternally true by Jesus. In all circumstances that look cloudy, there begins to be a tinge of brightness again because we can be truly hopeful. And so in closing this morning, what I'd like to ask is a simple question, but and, and I know it can be a, a tough one. Have you forfeited your joy in Jesus? And that's a day-by-day thing, right? That's not like a, that's not a, a statement of uh, indictment. Because if you say this morning, you know what I have, here's the hopefulness that I can give you, is that Christ offers it all over again, right? Over and over and over again, he stands at the ready. He says, I have, I've, over and over, Jesus says in the Gospels, I, I say this to you for your joy, that your joy may be full. In John 10, he says, I'm the good shepherd. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I've come to give you life and to give it abundantly. Jesus constantly says these things to us. So, so, so I ask that not to indict you with condemnation, but to, to say the first step for us to experience this joy is to admit that maybe we often forfeit it. And we forfeit it because we feel like we have to. But Paul tells us that when shame lies to us, we can believe the gospel and with full courage face the shame. With full courage face the shame. And so this morning as we take from the table of the Lord, I want to I ask that question. Maybe you can pick back up what you forfeited and, and while you come, lay down what you're holding on to. So like whatever the shame may be convincing you of, whether you be like my son who has no reason to be ashamed or whether you be like our first parents that there's real reason to be ashamed, listen to me, friends. Christ, our advocate, stands at the ready to take your shame and to offer you joy. And that exchange, although it can be a tough one when you've held on to it for a long time, is a freeing one. It's a freeing one. So if you'll stand to your feet, I'd love to pray for us. can come here as a, a gluten-free option for communion. Also on these sides, we'll have some prayer volunteers that are available to pray with you. Pray with me. Father, um, I want to I join Paul and say it's my eager expectation that you have the ability to deliver us. That, Lord, I know the accuser stands constantly at the ready to, to give us reasons why we ought not lay down our shame. And so, Holy Spirit, would you come now and in the gracious way that only you can do, gently begin to pry our fingers away from that which we so deeply are afraid of. Jesus, would you stand now and, 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 and remind us that you are that safe place, that, that refuge that we can run to, a very present help in time of trouble. That's what your word says. Stand at the ready. And as we take communion and we take of the bread, which represents the broken body that you were willing to experience for us, and as we take of the juice that represents the, the blood that you shed for us, I ask God that it would, 
it would not be us merely laying on top of our shame-filled heart, the gospel, but instead we would take the shame and let you nail it to the cross. And so when we take of the cup that we would we would sense the gospel begin to heal and offer us joy again in our marriages, joy again in our jobs, joy again in our homes, joy again in our community, joy again in our friendships, joy again in our parenthood, joy again in all things, my God. We ask for that freedom that comes only through the gospel. So do that glorious work for us, Lord, and, and, and help us to reject hiding. We love you, Lord. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may come and take.